Today's reading is from Matthew 6, 25 to 34, page 685 in your pew Bible. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God closes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more close you? O you of little faith. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For, For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I would like to thank this church for your faithful support of Camp Pinnacle. 25 children are coming to Camp Pinnacle this summer. And it is such an awesome pleasure to be able to see God work in the campers' lives. 32 children to date has already received Christ. Um, I remember after one meeting, one of the counselors came up to me and said, you know, today is my birthday, and three, three girls in my cabin received Jesus. This is the best birthday ever. She was just so excited. And then the next night, uh, the summer camp director comes to me, and it says, you know, I noticed that the, all the lights were on after lights out, so I kind of went up to the cabin to see what was going on. And he went from cabin to cabin, and each one with the children reading by flashlights their Bible or talking to the counselors. They're hungry for the Word of God. So keep Camp Pinnacle in your prayers. Wednesday night we get to share the gospel uh, with them. And uh, this coming week we have about double the kids coming than the previous two weeks. So pray for the counselors, their strength, and, and for everything to go according to God's plan. Now I have to be honest with you. Uh, before I can bring this message, I have to give a public confession. Actually two of them. Back in February, Pastor Brian had uh, given me a choice of three passages to preach. 
And the first one I looked at, I go, wow, I can do that. The second one, boy, that will preach. But the passage before us is the one I felt least prepared to give. But So I waited weeks to get back to him. Right away, I knew which one God had put his finger on because it hurt. You know when God does that? Um, then I got back to him, and, and i be honest with you. I said, well, Lord, I'll, I'll preach on this text, and uh, if I'm still here, that means you answer your word. You see, when he had asked me to preach on God's provision, um, Camp Pinnacle had minus $18,000 in the bank, and I had payroll to make, and I had no idea where it was going to come from. And uh, it was hard. I, uh, and uh, God still has us in the season of really walking by faith, but not one vendor has been paid late, and one, not any of the employees' payroll has been missed. And I can't tell you how. Every time my bookkeeper leaves, I always see a long list of red in QuickBooks. Uh, so I hold the checks until the last minute, and I just keep sending them out, and God just keeps having it come. So it's a passage that I've been struggling with, I'm still struggling with, but God is faithful. My next confession is that I am not a great man of faith. I'm a little man who's forced to walk greatly by faith, and I'm still struggling with that. So I asked the Lord, how do I apply this text, let alone for me, to, to preach it to somebody else? And I was trying to understand what he was really saying to us. What is the promise that we have before us here? Is it to provide or not to worry? Well, the command, and it is a command, not a suggestion, is not to worry. Or the King James puts it, take no thought. Or I think I heard it written somewhere else, be anxious for nothing. The promise is that God provides for us with some conditions. So I want us to be able to honestly walk away from this text and have God's promise firmly in hand. And before we can understand this text, we have to go outside of this text because what was the first word that you see in this text? It's the word, therefore. And I once had a wise professor tell me, he says, before you know what the word therefore is, you have to find out what it is there for. So you cannot begin to understand Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25 until you've come to grips and made a firm commitment and decision on verse 24. Do not bother with the rest if you have not settled the first. And listen closely to what he says in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You and I have to make a firm decision, or this is one of the conditions, the rest will not apply. And I'm convinced that's why so many of us and so many times I 
struggle with worry, anxiety, doubt, sin, is because we are trying to serve two masters. And the Lord used strong words. You don't placate them both. You hate one, you love the other. Devoted to one, you got to make a decision. I once had a board member used to always call a godly secretary used to have in the office and give her work to do. I walked in, she goes, I'm not going to do it. I work for you, she said. She could not stand working for two masters. She had to report just to one. We must firmly decide, are we really serving him and him alone? Oh, these other things are nice and some of them are necessary and he promises to provide for them, but to whom or what are you and I living for? As a young pastor, the first funeral that I had, uh, the first lady that I was with as she was passing on was a really difficult experience. I came into that family and this woman would not die. I mean, she was passed. I mean, she was just living on the medications just to keep her going. It was to the point where I saw the family shift and, and uh, you know, to say, Mom, please just let go. And her body was breaking down before us, but she was afraid to let go. And I found out why she was afraid to let go. I had been a new pastor. I really didn't get to know her that well. And she had called the other pastor in. She was struggling with the assurance of her salvation. And then she once told me, she goes, Pastor, I have lived my entire life working hard in the textile mills, and I had postponed my life for retirement. I retired at the age of 65, and I got cancer. She wasn't living for the Lord. She knew it, and she was racked with doubt and anxiety. And she could not accept any comfort from any other because she knew she had not made a decision on verse 24. Where do you stand on verse 24? We're going to look at the other verses, but they are contingent upon that. We must decide. First, we need to decide what is worry. I mean, we feel it. We know it. I looked it up, and I like this definition. It comes from Wittipikia. Well, can't even say it. You know what I'm talking about? Thank you. Okay. <laughs> A disease is an abnormal condition that affects the body of an organism. Hmm. It's an abnormal condition. For a lot of us, I think worry is a normal condition. It's a state in which we live. It's abnormal. When God had created everything, he sat back and said, it was very good. And yes, sin has entered into the world, but especially those of us who are called out of this world, who are his, we are commanded not to worry. And when we worry, we are living abnormally. It hurts the body, it hurts the mind, it hurts the soul. According to the New England Medical Journal that I had read many years ago that said 85% of all the problems that wind up people in the hospital are due to stress. Stress is a byproduct of worry. It makes our minds go nuts. It paralyzes us with indecision. It makes us useless. We've become an emotional mess in spirit, 
It's certainly not walking by faith. Worry is a heart that is turned away from God. I once learned this lesson uh, from a, a real neat movie series. Perhaps you've seen it, Anne of Green Gables. You know, Anne, she is so dramatic. And one time she is following Melissa up. Um, um, oh, I can't get anything right this morning. Marilla, thank you. Marilla up the stairs and she goes, Oh, I am in the depths of despair. And Marilla turned to you and said, To despair is to turn your back on God. And you know she is right. It's, what we're talking about here is very personal. God takes it very personally. And the ironic thing is they say that 90% of the things that we worry about, worry about never even happen. I, I met the Gappers. They had invited me to go on their cookout yesterday afternoon, so I met them out of prayer rim. And I got there, and I see the, 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 nurses, the nurse there with her Kubota, and, uh, and uh, she's got this little cart that someone lent her for the summer because she's got bad knees. And, uh, and uh, she was there, and, and this, this little girl was all worried and all upset, and the, and the nurse said, can you look at this? Uh, I happen to be a tick expert, so if you need to get ticked off, I'm the man. Um, but uh, she was afraid, this girl's from the city. I mean, we have kids that come up that have never seen animals, insects, trees, plants. You know, they live in a concrete lifestyle. And she goes, a, a tick had crawled across her thumb and went underneath her cuticle. And I'm like, well... Well, ticks don't do that. I, I, I picked so many ticks off of people, including myself. There's not enough room there, even for a nymph. But I went and I looked at it and I said, you know, you are tick-free. You know, you are okay. But she just continued to worry. And uh, as much as I tried to comfort her, she just would not accept the comfort. And then I, I go to eat with them and I go, yeah, ironically, this girl's name is Faith. <laughs> you know, I go, where, where is Faith? And, and uh, you know, she's over there and she's on the phone talking to her mother about her, her terrible trial that she was going through. And, and it, it, it took her, well, I didn't see her smile for a couple hours later. You know, but she just worried about something that wasn't there. I know she did not enjoy lunch or the cookout. And God gives us all good things to enjoy. And we are told in Philippians to be anxious for nothing. And here Jesus gives the command, do not worry, don't give a thought about these things. But yet that is all that we think about. Worry is lack of faith. We're pointing in the wrong direction when we worry. We are looking at the problems instead of the promises. We are looking at ourselves instead of the Savior. And when I was struggling through this in my quiet time some weeks ago, I wrote this down. I worry to the extent that I serve myself. Worry is like a thermometer. You get to see where you're at. Okay, here. Well, you know it's hot in this room, but if you go over... And you get to see what the temperature is. It confirms it. Worry is a signpost to let you know that you are sinning. That you're not trusting in God. You're turning your back on Him. Worry is sin. 
I think we need to take it more seriously because you know what? We think, I have every right to worry. And we like to get into our, if I can say this right, pity party. You know, and and we kind of somehow enjoy this morbid state. But it is not a state that God wants the Christian to be in. Why shouldn't we worry? Well, we already established that worry hurts both the body as well as the soul. It hurts God. How is it when somebody doesn't trust you? Maybe somebody close to you that you love and they just don't trust you. Does it hurt you? It hurts God. And us, it tears us up from the inside out. Worry is counterproductive. I have never accomplished anything in my life by worry. Oh, look at what worry has brought me. Have you ever seen anything good come out of your worry? It's counterproductive. And worse yet, it is not necessary. And we're going to look here, but God does provide. What is worry? Worry is a disease. It's an abnormal state. Why not the worry? Because it doesn't help at all. And what not to worry about? Let's look at the text. Now we establish this, we can go into verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Here we find the Lord is going to cover all the verses, uh, all the bases in this next section of 25 to 30. He's going to say, you don't have to worry about the short-term imminent things or the long-term things that are yet to happen. I got all of the bases covered. Now, in Palestine is a really dry, rough, rugged climate. There is a daily need of food and drink. I, I, I even bothered someone and said, please bring me something to drink. I had a hard time just not sweating enough in the service to be able to be lubricated enough to speak to you this morning. And believe me, Palestine is a lot rougher than this out in the open sun in the arid uh, desert that is there. And when Jesus says here, do not worry, and if you look back in the original, it's in the present imperative, which implies that the disciples were worrying. This was their state. Jesus was addressing in a problem that was right before them. And he said, do not worry. Or maybe better translated would be, stop worrying. Stop it right now. And then he gives the argument from the greater to the lesser. Look, I gave you your body. I'm going to provide for it. Make sense? You know, Colossians 1.16, everything was created by Jesus and through Jesus and for him. He made our bodies. He will take care of them. Whatever you face, Whatever responsibility you have, God will take care of it. For myself, Lord, to give me charge of pinnacle, he'll provide for it. Then he reverses the argument and goes from the lesser to the greater in verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns and let your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? You know, He's saying, you have more inherent value than a bird. 
Now, I, I think that's part of the problem when we see the onslaught of the corruption of our society that animal, animals are people too. Well, no, they're not. As much as we love our animals, animals are animals, people are made in the image of God. We have a great inherent value, but if we lose sight of that, we lose our value. I think that's why the second cause of death among young people is suicide. Because we have it taught in our schools that we just evolved. I I once was in the Dwaynesburg Diner, and I was uh, I was having an in-depth discussion with somebody about pro-life issues, and I had a lady come up to me and yell at me. She goes, you know, uh, a fetus is nothing, bunch of, nothing but a bunch of cancerous cells. I went, are you nuts? But that's what she said. Because you don't believe in God, uh, that is your option. It's not a very good one. But God nourishes the birds. Will he forget about his own children? The relational value. The birds, God is their creator. You and I, he is our father. A much closer relationship we have with him than the rest of those things that have been made. And finally, in verse 27 of this section, we read, And who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And that's probably the best translation. Some use cubic, but it's a measurement of time, which is, becomes obvious within the text. But, so he's telling us those short-term things, your food and your drink, which we need quite imminently, especially in a climate that Jesus was talking about. I was thinking about right before I came here, it was pouring rain at my house. I don't know about yours, but it was coming down heavy. And I started thinking out west, boy, we get the water, and they, get, they have wildfires running rampant. And yet we worry about so many things. What about the long term? And I, you look at the next section, 28 to 30, and, and he uses clothes as a primary thing. And I can't help but think of uh, the children of Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness that for 40 years the soles of their sandals did not wear out. But in verse 28 it says, And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. You know, it's amazing how the birds are free, the flowers are wild, no one plants them, and yet they look gorgeous. I remember back in 90, oh no, in 85 when we moved up to Maine, and the first time I saw lupins, I never seen lupins before. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they're gorgeous, beautifully colored plants, and, and I guess they only uh, grow in northern climes. And I, I looked at a field up behind the village of Sheepscot, and it was just loaded with millions of lupins. And then there was a stream that went into the river, and the river eventually made it out to the ocean. It was such a pastorally beautiful, idyllic sight. And, and, and no one did anything to cause it to happen. It was gorgeous. And God did it all. And in verse 29, he takes it a step further. Now, if you think, and and he's talking to the children of Israel, and and the greatest king that they had had as far as wealth in this world goes was Solomon. And in verse 29, it says, Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. I mean, it is amazing. Look at the beauty. I mean, We look at wonderful structures that man can make, but to me it always pales to the natural beauty that is there. 
and especially those settings where man had nothing to do with. You know, you ever climb one of the tallest peaks in the Adirondacks? You get up there and you look, and you're on top of the world. And it's beautiful. This is our God. And then verse 30, once again, he's, trying, he's covering all the bases. The lesser to the greater, the greater to the lesser. Here's the lesser to the greater. And then he says this, If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? I mean, we mow our grass. And we just cut it right down. We just leave it there, or we pick it up, and we put it in a compost pile. In that country, you know, fuel was scarce, so they'd take the grass, dry it out, and it's what they cooked in with their ovens. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing, and yet, look how beautiful as you sit there, and you, and you ever just lay on a, a nice lawn, and it's just a really a pleasant thing to behold. But then Jesus ended this verse with a really powerful statement. Oh, you of little faith. How is your faith? In your life, to what priority is your faith? Is your family more important? Your job, your responsibilities? Often, I think, we kind of just call on faith, grab it out of the closet. It's kind of like the coupoose behind the train. We rip it out when we need it because we have a problem that we can't handle. And Oh, yeah, God is there. Faith isn't meant to be a caboose. It's meant to be the locomotive driven by the Savior himself. How do we implement faith? Verses 31 to 34, God calls us to be different. Now, that's hard to do. God wants us to be different from the world. God wants us to act differently from the way that we naturally want to act. That takes an act of faith. And what we're going to do instead, he tells us to stop something, and he tells us to start something. In verse 31, he says, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. We are told to stop worrying. We are told to stop running. And, you know, it sums it up. He says, just stop running after these things. That's what the pagans do. Are we living like the pagans? They believe that they must provide for themselves. In fact, it's part of our American way. To provide for ourselves rugged individualism, that's not all right. That is partially wrong. And what's worse is we see our country moving into communism. That is mostly wrong. But both of them are not God's ideal. As Christians... We are to live for a higher world. We have a heavenly Father. He knows our needs even before we ask. As David said in Psalm 139, even before there's a word on my tongue, Behold, O Lord, thou dost know it all. (laughs) I remember as a young Christian, I was trying that out. I was I just blurting out words. Oh, you knew I was going to say that. I didn't know I was going to say. How many times you say something? Oh, I didn't. What really didn't think about that? God knows it all. 
God is full of love towards us and will act accordingly. He knows what we need even before we ask. So we need to stop worrying, we need to stop running, and we need to start, verse 33, but seek ye first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. We need to make yet another decision here. Are we going to choose to walk by faith or by sight? Hebrews 11 tells us that without faith it is impossible to please God. We must first believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, he says seek first. You know, where I disqualified rugged individualism and communism because, you know, God, God does not want to have a mon- us to have a monastic viewpoint where that's all we do. We become a recluse. We just go out into the woods and we just look for a manna to drop from heaven. Is that God's will for us? No. He doesn't say seek only. He says seek first. Even if it seems that we're facing inevitable disaster, that our needs are imminent, that we need them now, how often do we rush ahead and we try to take care of providing for things and then later on ask God to bless them? We need to choose God fully. We need to relieve the results into his hand. We need to start with him and not stop with him. Because... God wants us to have a stable foundation for these things to be added to. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. We get that backwards. Lord, when I get these things, when I take care of these problems, then I'll have time with you. We need to put him first. Just like in the offering, we're supposed to give of our first fruits. We are to turn to him first not last. We need to start seeking and we need to start working. Look at verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. There is the balance. We need to work in this day. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon told, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. You know, the good Protestant work ethic has a good foundation, but it was never to replace seeking God first. We're to seek Him first, get His direction, and do with our whole heart what He directs us to do. But it has to be in that order. You can't start working first. You won't know what to work for. I seem to remember God saying somewhere else that my, said, my thoughts aren't your thoughts. My ways aren't your ways. So if you go forth with assumption, you know what happens when you assume. I won't say it from the pulpit. You can parse it out yourself. But that's what happens. And we have an adversary. We need to work spiritually. In Ephesians 6, we are told to put on the full armor of God. That armor was heavy in those days, and it took some work, and they usually had a squire to help them out. 
We need to put on the full armor of God that we can stand in the evil day. We need to seek him first with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and all of our strength. I seem to notice that we tend to do that really quite well when we're rushing out of the house and can't find our keys. That ever happened to you? Should we seek God as much as we seek our keys? Now we have an argument from the lesser to the greater, do we not? Can we learn from Jesus' pattern there? Huh, I know I think of nothing else and I become a man-man just going through the house and, and trying to find out where, every, where these things are. Oh no, and then I start complaining, I'm going to be late. Just on and on it goes. Do we treat our keys better than we treat God? Now that's ironic. That's, that's pathetic. What does God really think of us? How are we really treating him? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. How do you know when you find something? My family will tell you when I find something, my countenance changes. I got my keys. When you pray, is your countenance any different before and after prayer? When you have a pressing, imminent problem. Do you walk away from prayer any different? Perhaps you need to look in the mirror. Has your face improved? (laughs) The joy of the Lord is to be our strength. We are to be people that are full of peace and joy. You read the book of Philippians, he says, I'll say it again, rejoice in the Lord always. And he, Always? Oh no, another one of those verses. You mean when I'm racked with worry? What are we supposed to be doing? We should always have joy. Or if you look at Philippians 4, 6, and 7, that we've referred to, be anxious for nothing but everything by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving. That's the act of faith. Let your request be made known to God. And what? The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. If you have his peace and you have his joy and you went to him without it, you have not properly gone to him unless you walk away with it. There needs to be that change. And that change doesn't come easy sometimes. Sometimes we have to wrestle with the angel like Jacob did. But wrestle we must. That's work. But settle for nothing less. God offers nothing less to us. And how is it when we walk away from him and we say we prayed and we're still burdened? And we come up to somebody and say, how, how are you doing? Well, okay, under the circumstances. Well, biblically speaking, what are you doing under the circumstances? God lifts us up. God also said, I believe in the book of Romans, that I can work out all things together for, how does that go? Good. Now, it doesn't say everything that's going to happen to you and I is good. We know that. It isn't. But in God's hands, he can work it out for good. I think of Joseph, my word, you know, to be uh, turned on, betrayed by your brothers, sold into Egypt. In Egypt, you work faithfully, and what do you get for your troubles? Get thrown in the jail. When you're in jail, all you ask is somebody who gets released to tell it to the king, and then you get forgotten. And then finally, after rotting there day in and day out, 
But God was doing a work in his heart. Remember how we had asked the question earlier, how important is our faith to us? What is God really trying to do for us? He is preparing a bride for himself. All the things that we strive for and worry about when we die, it is all left behind. All we do is present ourselves to him. And he wants to do a work within us. And though others may mean it for evil, God meant it for good. That's what Joseph said when he talked to his brothers afterwards. And he preserved their lives. And I even think of the cross, the cross that is ever before us. In any other context or circumstance, we will look at the cross as an utter failure. How would you like your life to end up like that? Upon a cross. Cursed is every man who dies upon a tree, the Scripture says. Not a good way to end. And, and, and here it looked like Satan had the upper hand, and he won and had Jesus beaten and had Jesus put upon the cross. But if you remember earlier when he was warned, don't go to Jerusalem, they're seeking your life. Jesus said, I need to go to Jerusalem for He was born to die. That was his very purpose. And the very thing that Satan thought he had gotten victory was the very thing that fulfilled the purpose for which God came and gave him defeat. Things aren't always as they seem. We can only understand some things through the eyes of faith and no other way. But let me ask you, is God real? then if he is, which eyes are more valid? These or the ones in our heart that we see by faith? I was once given this a vivid illustration, and I remember back in in December of 1976, Andre Cole, a Christian musician, had come to the University of Rhode Island where I was studying to be a commercial fisherman. And um, when I was there, he came, and it was a big campus, 20,000 students, and uh, there were thousands and thousands packed in the campus's largest auditorium. And I saw world-class magic. Nothing I had ever seen like this before or since. I mean, I was there. I, I saw his assistant cut in two, put on two sides of the stage, but yet I could see her hand and her foot waving. And I saw him and other people walk between them. I, I, I can't explain it. I saw him float in midair and take some friends that I knew and gave them hula hoops and go around them and see that there were no strings attached. I saw all kinds of wonderful things, and it was amazing. And he stood up and said, we're going to take an intermission now. And this was far from a godly campus. And he goes, well, I'm going to share the gospel of Jesus Christ afterwards. You can stay if you like. No one left for intermission because it was standing room only in that auditorium. And the first half of the show did not leave you wanting I mean, it was amazing. Everyone stayed glued to their seat. And he came back and he said, you know, you can't believe the empirical evidence of what you see or if you've heard. Obviously, I did not cut my uh, assistant in half. And obviously, I did not break the laws of gravity and, and float. I deceived you. You cannot fully trust what you see and hear and touch and taste. But he goes, the one thing that you can trust is the Word of God, the Bible, His promises. Do we believe that? 
Do we seek God till we find him and give up for nothing less? Don't take anything less. You need nothing less, and God deserves nothing less. He is worthy of our trust. He wants to give. Listen to what James tells us in chapter 1. Consider it all a joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result. That you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. That's what God wants to do with our faith. He wants to complete it. And that's how he does it. And he often uses trials. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to us. He often asks us to walk by faith. It's more a natural state than an abnormal one for one who is saved by faith. And if you've been saved by faith, should we not also walk by faith? But the man who comes to God must ask without any doubt, for he who doubts is driven and tossed by the wind, by the surf of the sea, and he is an unstable man in all of his ways. And let that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Those are strong words. And it's okay for us to cry out like the sorcerer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. But believe. Though it be, might be a, a size of a mustard seed, make it all and make it pure. And allow it to grow. But walk by faith we must. We must to the point that it changes us from the inside. That now we have joy and peace that is inexplicable. And therefore, we will be a testimony to the world. Have you ever had someone came up to you and say, boy, what makes you different? People need to see Christ in us. We need to stand out. Why are you happy? You have no reason to be happy. Well, here's the source of my joy, and it could be yours too. You know, when we worry, you've got all this penned-up energy, and we can't just turn it off. We need to redirect it. Martial arts learned this in the physical realm quite well. An opponent comes tacking at you, uses weight and force against them, and you can throw them with it or counter it. It really works. And it is also true spiritually that we got to do something. Let's do the right thing. Let's work hard at prayer. Let's work hard at what God puts before us. And that'll help both our mind and our body. For each day has enough trouble of its own. Or as Ephesians 5, 16 says, say, make the most of your time for the days are of evil. So you seek him first. You know that it's all taken care of. <clears throat> you walk away with peace and with joy. And then what I try to do is I go through my daytime or I prioritize my day. I go, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then I go about it with all of my strength. That, I think, is how God wants us to live. Get your marching orders from him and then go. And go in the peace and the joy of the Lord that no one can take away from you, but you can give it up. No one can take away. What happened to Paul and Silas when, when, they, when they were lied about and brought to the magistrate when they took that guy's source of income away. You remember he had the slave girl and the slave girl was prophesying and, and followed them around and said, these men are the way of salvation. They're sharing the gospel. And then finally Paul got annoyed and turned around to rebuke the spirit and it is left. After all, you don't want a demon to go before you. Uh, being your, yeah, that, that's the one that says what I'm doing is right. 
And then they said, oh, he's stirring up the whole city. They weren't stirring up the whole city. They just took away. These guys were exploiting some poor little girl. But then he took them and beat them with, stripped the robes off them, beat them with rods, put them in stocks, threw them in the inner prison. And kind of like the summer camp counselor when came around midnight and you try to wondering, what is that noise I hear? Everyone should be asleep. They were singing hymns of praises to God. They had the peace and the joy. And then all of a sudden, all the stocks came off and the, and the doors opened up. And, and the jailer saw that and took a sword and went to kill himself. And, and, and Paul says, no, 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 don't do that. We are all here. And they says, boy, what must I do to be saved? Who would ever thought that would be the way the salvation for that man in his household? But would it have happened if they did not accept God's peace and accept God's joy and allowed it to be heard by others? I think we very much need to do the same. After all, when Jesus says, stop worrying, do not worry, it is not a suggestion. It is not a promise. Promises are neat. It is a command that God wants us to do because he does promise to meet our needs. And it will help you both physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, And best of all, it helps you in reality. For God is the maker, creator, and sustainer of this world. And he sustains us by faith. Do we, do I, consider it all joy? I was reminded that I had preached on that text last week at camp. And we ran into an inordinate amount of problems, (laughs) both in camp and at home. And we just kept looking at each other. Go, oh, it's going to be wild before I preach on that verse again. <laughs> I don't know if I can handle it. But yet, those are blessed opportunities in our life that we should never trade for anything else. Test. We're not to consider it all that God will take care of it. We're to consider it all joy. And that can be ours if our confidence is in him, if we trust the Savior more than ourself, if we walk by faith and not by sight. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we do not have to worry ever, ever, any time or any circumstance, for you are fully in control. And I ask, Lord, that you help each of us now to choose you. As verse 24 said, to choose to serve you more than this world, to even hate it in comparison. And Lord, I ask that you'd help us never to forget it. That each of us here would know the blessings of trusting you by faith with the peace, joy, and provision that you give. Hold us to it, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.